and welcome to episode 34 of the Different Doctor Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it. And Doc, isn't it good to be back on terra firma, as it were? It's a blessed relief. Yeah. Um, as you know, modern Doctor Who sort of catches me out of my medium quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It was The last six weeks have almost been easier because being something brand new, well, then you've also been caught out of your medium as well. Mm. Um, so that's made it a little bit easier for me. Um, I'm glad we did the project. Um, I'm not convinced I enjoyed watching all of it, and I'm not convinced that I had a great deal that was very interesting to talk about. Um, it's the story that I've ended up coming to the conclusion about the project we did, that I'm actually as insecure about our success as I think probably the program makers were. Mm. Oh, you know, just for clarification for anybody listening that's confused, this is our first like proper record since uh, Flux started. Even though, you know, a couple of episodes of Classic Who, uh, well, no, not, not even Classic actually. I think the Peter Capaldi into the Dalek story and the Jodie Whittaker Ghost Monument story will have been released before this. We recorded those way back before Flux even started transmitting right. so you know th- things have got a bit confusing and complicated in terms of scheduling um now tonight we, we, we get, we're going to complicate things even further aren't we doc with our with our plan over the next couple yeah. of episodes because we've been dealing with modern doctor who we, we, we've we felt the need to take on board the uh the non-linear narrative uh-huh. um so we, we, we uh-huh. first of all we ruptured our own linear narrative um, by instead of looping back around to the start of the series again, we took a whole entire six weeks out to do flux. Mm. Um, so that that yeah that that interrupted our own linear narrative, and now we're going to interrupt the linear narrative of the television program. We are, of course. I need to explain myself, and I need to explain what we're going to do. Um, key listeners will be aware that Mo's good ideas tend to work out better than my good ideas. This is one of mine. <laughs> Um, I was greatly uncertain about whether a two-parter, any two-parter, by the nature of the beast, would have enough material to fill a whole entire 90-minute slot. Um, I noticed that coming up in our schedule, um, we had two two-parters. So we had The Edge of Destruction, um, then something Patrick Trapp, then something John Pertwee, then the Sontaran Experiment. And I propounded the idea to Mo that we do them both in the same episode. So we're still doing four episodes, pretty much the same as normal. And I wanted to use it as a chance to discuss the medium of of, of two-part Doctor Who, or two times 25-minute Doctor Who stories. Mm -hmm. Because we had a perfect opportunity to do two of them back-to-back. It also meant that we could roll up two lesser stories into one slot. Mm -hmm. Um, And did something that I wanted to do, which was a a compare and contrast of Doctor Who in the early 1960s to Doctor Who in the mid-1970s. Yeah. However, um, however, Doc, we are releasing them as separate episodes. So episode 34 is going to be Edge of Destruction. Episode 35 is going to be the Sontaran Experiment. But, dear listener, my God, we, we just live to give. We're going to give you those two episodes one day after the other. So episode 34 is going to drop. And then the day after, episode 35, so that we can do this. So, so that it's still fresh in your minds 
the compare and contrast that the, the, the good doctor here wants to do. Yeah. Um, so basically, instead of giving you Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife and oh, yeah. the gold watch. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in Big Man's wife. Well, he's going out of town of Florida and he asked me if I take care of him while he's gone. Take care of him? No, man. Just make sure it's a good time, make sure she don't get lonely. Girl. You see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. <laughs> two separate episodes. We're going to chop both of them up and we're going to mix them together into a single episode. Um, but with everything running in strict narrative. Um, so the episode's going to begin with Vincent meeting Butch in Marcellus Wallace's bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to finish with Butch riding off in his chopper. <laughs> there we go, Doc. A lo- lovely, go. lovely analogy. That's great. Um, Doc, I've been watching Peep Show on Netflix. Guess who popped up in it? Good old Peter Capaldi. He, oh, good lord! Really, really surprised. He, and it, he was playing like a, a, a really kind of creepy, um, handsy, sex, kind of sex offending uh, uh, pro- uh, university professor. He was great. He was absolutely great. Isn't that? I mean, I'm not an expert on Peter Capaldi's career apart from him being in the Lair of the White Worm. Mm. But isn't that basically the, like the role that you hired Peter Capaldi for in the first uh-huh. place? Well, the, the, the other two things I know for outside of Who and outside of the Lair of the White Worm would be um, he was in World War Z. Does it live in a jungle? No. Oh. Is it really fast? No. Does it live on the Great Plains of Africa? No. Hey! What is going on? Hold on, guys. Daddy, be careful on the road. Jerry? Get back in your car right now! Remain with your feet! As like a like a really important scientist guy uh, in Wales, trying to figure, trying to help Brad Pitt fend off hordes of zombies, um, and of course, I think outside of Doctor Who, his most famous role must be Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It. Surely, John, how are you doing? I just want to tell you, 
I really enjoyed your novel. Oh, thank you very much. Way of writing a fucking awful story. Joking, joking. Thanks. Malcolm, are you, are you producing porn or now for the visually impaired? What? Because what I'm hearing here on my radio is Nicola Murray being roundly fucked. What is this, bukkake at bedtime? You simply made a mistake. You got on the record and off the record fucking mixed up. What would have happened if, like, George Martin had done that? We'd have no fucking Beatles, that's what. No, I don't give a fuck about that. I've had to fucking sit next to Paul McCartney at fucking Checkers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You see, the thing is, none of those things give me so much life affirmation as discovering that Hugh Grant also has masturbatory fantasies about air hostesses in bondage. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think we. I, I think I think the sun told, told the world the the, the the fantasies lived out in real life. A few grant, if, if we remember from the mid nineties, what did you call Divine Brown? Yes, that's right. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, getting a blowjob from a prostitute—that—that's—that's that's, that's not very exotic, is it? No, it's not. Come on, Hugh, you can do better than that. Um, I mean, I, I was I was actually impressed that she was an overweight and an attractive one. <laughs> I know, absolutely, I know, absolutely shocking. All that money, Jesus Christ. Um, Doc, do you want some corrections? No, but go on. No, but we must, we must. And we have, I think, maybe eight or nine, unfortunately. And these date back to pre-flux. So, you know, if our memories are a bit sketchy, apologies, guys. Um into the Dalek was episode 31, not episode 27, as stated at the start of that particular show. Um, I think the reasons are self-explanatory. We've already explained the, like the schedule, scheduling snafu we had when we realised that Doctor Who Flux even fucking existed. It, 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 <laughs> yes. yeah, it threw, our, it threw our, our, our time vortex into all of a quiver. Um, um, listeners, um, what basically happened was uh, Mo came on um, the video conferencing thing to me to me and said, um, Doctor Who's on next week. I said, yeah, uh-huh. um, I know it is. We, we, um, in case you don't remember, having organised this project, we end up watching Doctor Who most weeks. And Mo said, no, like, there's new, there's, there's Doctor Who, what you have not seen before. Yes, right. Uh, uh, next. I said, well, I haven't seen any of this stuff before. You know, this is on. No, you don't realise, idiot. Um, <laughs> there is brand new Doctor Who that nobody um, in the world who doesn't work for the BBC or any other outsourcing contractors has seen. That's right. Um, and I think I sat there with my jaw, like, moving slackly up and down That's for a right. little while. Yeah, yeah. Your mandibles were even more disgusting than usual, Doc, let me tell you that. Um, well, the, 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 the mandibles, like, as usual, working from side to side. That's right. Were, were really quite controlled and poised. It was just my lower jaw. <laughs> yeah. In the Into the Dalek episode, we got talking about the theme from M.A.S.H., um, I can't remember why. And I said it was written by a 15-year-old lad. I was half right. Here's what the Hollywood Reporter have to say on that particular matter. Before one frame was shot, Mandel was commissioned, this is the name of the lad, Mandel was commissioned by director Robert Altman to compose a song he wanted to be called Suicide is Painless for the 1970 movie MASH. It was to go with the scene in which Captain Walter Painless Paul Wodowski uh, John Shook is the name of the actor, climbs into a casket after a depressing episode of failed lovemaking with a nurse. Altman told, also told Mandel, it's got to be the stupidest song ever written. 
I said to myself, oh, so that, it's not the lad, that's the composer. I said to myself, well, I can do stupid. Amanda record in an extensive 2008 interview with music journalist Mark Myers for the Jazz Wax blog. Bob was going to take a shot at the lyrics, but he came back two days later and said, I'm sorry, but there's just too much stuff in his 45-year-old brain. I can't write anything nearly as stupid as what we need. So it was left to Michael Altman, the director's 15-year-old son, to come up with the lyrics. Amanda wrote the music to accompany the kids' words. So the music was written by, you know, a professional adult composer. The words, as incredibly profound as they are, incredibly were written by a 15-year-old. What do you make of that, Doc? That's quite incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. Um, then as now, news to me. Did not yep. know that. There we go, Doc. Um, the Jackie Chan movie I mentioned that was shot in Canada, not New York, was, of course... Rumble in the Bronx. What a, what a great film that is, Doc. Um, we weren't sure how old Matt Smith was when he took on the role of the Doctor. He was 26. And for clarity, we were comparing him with Peter Davison, who was, do you know, Doc? I want to say 29. Yeah, exactly correct. Well done, sir. Five points to the Doc. 29. Um, we referenced an Iron Maiden single cover, but couldn't remember which song it was. Um... And here's the skinny from Wikipedia. Hold on, let me open the page. I should have prepped this in advance, shouldn't I, Doc? How about this? This, was the, this, this, this was the cover featuring Eddie holding the severed head of Margaret Thatcher, if I believe. <laughs> That's the very one, yeah. Um, the track was called, what did I say? Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, the, the, the song's called Sanctuary. <laughs> track actually um and here's what wikipedia says artwork and controversy is the subheading the cover art caused controversy for the band as it depicted their mascot eddie wielding a knife while crouching over the corpse of then british prime minister margaret thatcher the band's manager rod smallwood explained the artwork's concept as if he needs any fucking explaining but he did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the artwork is very tongue-in-cheek as usual at that time maggie had visited the old ussr and following her tough stance with them, had been christened the Iron Maiden. Eddie took offence to this, <laughs> which he started taking our posters. It was Smallwood himself who suggested to EMI that the cover be released with Thatcher's face censored, as this would give the tabloids an angle and draw attention to the single. Um, the attempt to gain coverage proved successful with the Daily Mirror running a story about the single, as well as publishing the uncensored artwork on the 20th of May under the headline, It's Murder, Maggie Gets Rock, Rock, sorry, Maggie Gets Rock Mugging. The Daily Record, is that that's Scottish, that's a Scottish paper, isn't it, Doc? The Daily Record. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Daily Record also published an article which deemed the cover horrific, as well as included <laughs> interviews with young Scottish conservatives who criticised the artwork as being in very bad taste. Um, Margaret, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher also appeared on the band's next single, Women in Uniform. shown seeking revenge on Eddie with a machine gun. It's great stuff, isn't it, Doc? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, um, heaven forbid that anything related to the new wave of British heavy metal should be considered to be in bad taste. <laughs> Due to go, actually, not as many as I thought. In the Ghost Monument episode, I referenced a Jennifer Lawrence movie, which I claimed was called The Devil's Backbone. It wasn't. The Devil's Backbone is an early Guillermo del Toro film, whilst the film I was thinking of was Winter's Bone. Both great, by the way. So check them both out. Why don't ya? Um, in the Christmas episode, I accused Ben Elton of being a sellout for accepting an honour of some kind from the Queen. I don't think you did. Uh, if I remember correctly, you said that he was thought widely thought of as being a sellout amongst the alternative comedy community. I'm taking it on the chin, Doc. I'm, I'm taking one for the team. Um, okay. I was doing the man a disservice. No such honour was ever offered, much less accepted. Apologies, Ben. Fair cop. Fair cop. Uh, that's it, Doc. That, 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 there we go. That's corrections up to date. Um, let's get on with the show. I think we should. Welcome to part one of the podcast, which we call TARDIS Talk. It's topic of the week, eight. Um, give me a number, Doc, between one and 13, please, would you believe? Oh, goodness gracious me. Mm. Um, it's a day for good luck. Uh, so I'm not going to go for unlucky 13. I'm going for lucky seven. Number seven. How does music in the zeitgeist affect TV production? What do we think about this? And here's the inspiration for this question, Doc. I watched, strangely, <laughs> me, me and my housemates watched a bit of Chock-A-Block. Chuck a 
on YouTube, we were a little bit drunk and a little bit baked. And we couldn't believe quite how prog rock the song that features in that show actually is. Um, and I, I, I presume that, 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 you know, that, it, that it's from that time, basically. So how does Zeitgeist music affect stuff, Doc? What do we think? Oh, massively. Yeah. Um, I know there is, uh, I mean, it's a really, really obvious and pretty crass example. Um, until I think probably they both died, there was an ongoing disagreement between Roger Price and David Bowie about which of them came up with the expression homo superior. Mm-hmm. Um, whether David Bowie came up with it and Roger Price co-opted it to use in the Tomorrow People. in fact the other way around right uh, I mean that's the most example the, the, the most obvious example I can think of um, off the top of my head it, if you want to talk about it in, in, in cultural terms um, I'm bringing this up not because it's anything to do with television and certainly not UK television but this happened either uh, this happened the night before last um, I for a different Doctor Who episode, which is coming up in a few weeks' time, and which I will be mentioning again, um, I felt the need to go back and re-watch um, Abel Ferrara's masterpiece, Driller Killer. I want it right there. Where? You want to put a hole right here? Yeah. All right. Right there? Yeah. Okay. Holy Christ, man. What is this? What did they do? Send us to build a master square garden? You mean the masterpiece isn't finished yet, Mr. Moore? Almost. We need another week. It's finished. I mean, you know we need the money, so why don't you face up to it? We'll take it. It's great. It's two in the morning, guys. Oh yeah, uh-huh. um, another form of video nasty that you and I went out and bought um, on the day of its first legitimate release in the UK. Mm-hmm. Watched, um, and two very very weird things happened while I was watching it. Um, apart from the fact that one of the things that everyone remembers about that film is that it's got a loud and annoying and really really awful punk rock band in it. Mm. Um, I don't think that movie could have existed without punk rock existing at the time. Sure. I don't think anyone would have... I think people made movies that cheap and that amateurish before, but I don't think anyone would have been so unashamed about making a movie that cheap and that amateurish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's got it's got line fluffs left in it by mistake. Who knows? Mm. It's got bad acting... By mistake. I, I mean, mm. I've never, I, I haven't often been around people on day three of a really bad speed come down. Um, and I, I suspect their behavior is pretty unpredictable at the best of times. But hell, you know what? It looks like bad acting, and I suspect it might be. 
but your, your kind of caveat there suggests that you, you think maybe that was done deliberately almost to add kind of authenticity and credibility to it. Well, it, what it looks like is ambiguous. And I don't actually know whether Abel Ferrara didn't go into this disgusting commune and find a girl who was on a third day of speed come down mm. Um, mm. and say, um, oh, look at this fucking freak. We'll, we'll, we'll point the camera at her for a bit. Mm-hmm. This will be great in the movie. Yeah. Um, and there's there's all of this stuff that uh, people made crappy movies and cheap movies and amateurish movies before that. But before that time period, I don't think anyone would have been that unapologetic about the fact that that, that even Ed Wood like tried to do whatever he could to Hollywood it up, and you know he'd 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 try to scrounge up an extra few quid just to have Hollywood movie titles. And he'd try to get like a proper star who someone had heard of, and he tried to get some pro actors, and he he tried to polish the fucking turd. Mm. Um, Abel Ferrara doesn't really fail to polish the turd. He wraps the turd um, in an old bread bag wrapper and stamps on it, mm. um, and then smears it round all over the pavement and goes, "Look, I made the turd look even worse than it did when it fell out of my ass." Now, remind me, Doc. I think I'm right about this. Driller Killer is set in New York, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and 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 when was it made? Like eighty three, eighty four, something like that. I I want to say I, I feel like a little. I feel like because I feel like um, was forty five was about nineteen eighty, and yeah, all that. Yeah, I'm just having a quick look actually, because um, I, I was thinking like early eighties, nineteen seventy nine. Dot, you're right. Um, so <clears throat> at that time. You know, New York was something of a cesspit, wasn't it? You know, crime was rife, filth on the streets, everywhere smelled of piss. The punk bands at the time were reflective of that, weren't they? And and the vibe of that movie is definitely reflective of it too. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the, this is obviously not the gen. It's not even the middle class on the edge of collapse, New York. Um, that you get in, let's say, Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Enjoy a typical afternoon in New York City. Who is it? Where's his name? My name is Paul Kersey. How's my life? I'm sorry. She died a few minutes ago, Mr. Kersey. Any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. Um, like, this is... Alphabet City, so it's uh, avenues A, B, C, and D, um, which are the bits to the east of First Avenue um, and way, way, way downtown, sort of um, around Bowery and Bleecker, mm. um, going on to St. Mark's, where CBGB's was until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had this weird thing that you used to get before urban areas gentrified. There were these cesspool neighbourhoods where, uh, and in some of them, like 
rent collectors were too terrified to even go because anyone who was suspected to have cash on them would get mugged. Sure. Um, nobody even bothered trying to collect rents because, uh, and you know, um, construction workers wouldn't dare to go there. Um, basically, nobody who wasn't a piece of subhuman shit would even dare to set foot in those neighbourhoods. Mm. Um, and you'll find a lot of documentary material that the whole, not the punk rock ethic, but the punk rock image was specifically devised to look even freakier and even wilder and even more dangerous than the illegal migrants and the junkies and the recently released criminals. Um, and it was very definitely a, a, a defense mechanism just to, to try and scare the other animals away. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean the, the whole vibe of that neighborhood, um, I think probably Abel Ferrara lived there at that point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, there's nothing about that film that looks clean or like you feel like you're going to get diseases looking at the movie don't you the nearest equivalent i've seen in in a a western country would be um the tenderloin in san francisco you know where i was walking through the tenderloin looked down an alley and there's a guy taking a shit basically in the middle of the street um you know a a rough old area um i think i think there are similar problems the you know these days the Skid Row area of, of, of Los Angeles you know is is, is apparently sort of encountering terrible terrible problems based on you know you know I mean not to get political but but you know the that some liberal political decisions that have that have been made that have proved absolutely catastrophic um, and New York was was it kind of in 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 the grip of that at the time wasn't it Doc. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what I think listeners should do now is um, pick up one of the widely available and by and large very well-researched books on white flight and urban decay in New York City in the 1970s. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a long read, um, particularly if you want to get all the different sides of it. Um, and it's, it's the tragedy of a whole entire society. I can't sum it up. Um, when that movie was made... It was still like another twelve years before I'd set foot in New York City, mm. so I, I, I certainly wasn't around at that time. Um, there's a bunch of very reliable scholarship, and there's a bunch of very reliable material about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, um, I know that's not television, but it's a starting point. Um, I'm going to talk about this a lot more when we get to the latter stages of the Patrick Trapp era, but that's going to be a while, so I'll spend a little time on it now. I think the latter stages of the Patrick Troughton era are 100% acid-soaked psychedelic. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that stops it from being full-on psychedelic is that um, it's in black and white. If yeah. they've been able to use, I mean, if you look at like the set designs in, look at the set designs in the War Games, mm. where for no good reason you've got like um, a big cardboard panel painted with geometric shapes Mm. that's rotating against another big cardboard panel painted with geometric shapes. There's so much of the aesthetic of that period of Doctor Who that's so influenced by acid culture and psychedelic culture. Um, The music is, it doesn't sound anything like Pink Floyd or Jimi Hendrix. But it's it's on the same vibe. It's on the same wavelength. Mm, mm, um, I, I think the mu- I think the music is 
you, you know, the, the music you reference there is is acid drenched. But those visuals you're talking about is more like uh, Salvia Divinorum kind of shit. You know, the the stuff that Terry yeah. Gilliam's influenced by. Yeah, um, I mean, I, um, I don't know um, if you believe people who are around in the '60s and into that stuff. Um, I think they would probably tell you that, like, the acid was just much better in those oh, days. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that's true. Yeah, yeah, much more potent. Yeah. Um, but I think, as with any scene, that the drugs are a part of it, and the drugs are a significant part of it. Mm-hmm. The music's part of it, and the music's a significant part of it. But you need the drugs and the music and the people and the politics mm-hmm. and the social climate. And I mean, the the one that we lived through, and you lived through more than I did was um and i suppose it was even the arse end of rave culture the early 90s techno culture mm. um you know you, you you need all of that stuff coming together in the right place at the right time in the right proportions mm-hmm. i'm sad that there was no doctor who being made by the bbc during the era of uh, i've got to get this right because people who were there in the late 80s will tell you that rave culture was all over by 1990 Sure. Um, you know, basically, by the time any record appeared in the shops or anything was on top of the pops, um, then it was already over. Because um, um, scenesters like you and me, we like to say stuff like that, don't we? Of course, yeah, yeah. Horrid old hipsters. Although, it, it, you know, it, it, even if that's true, that rave was over by 1991, you know, it, it wouldn't have been out of character for, for Doctor Who to, you know, to kind of drop a, a rave-inspired theme tune because that's what they did in 1980 wasn't it you know because let's be honest disco was pretty much dead by then and then they discoed the fuck out of that theme tune well it, it, it's it's this odd the, the the theme tune that debuted in 1980 is kind of an amalgam of three obsolete genres it's an mm-hmm. amalgam of disco and progressive rock mm-hmm. and new wave of british heavy metal yeah mm-hmm. um i mean it, it, it's it's got that fucking saxon solo in the middle of it yeah <laughs> yeah um and you know, give, 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 give us a Saxon tune, Doc, so we can drop a sample in. Um, I think there's probably one called Motorcycle Man that you'll want to. Uh, <laughs> All right, we'll use that one for reference. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who catching up to actual cutting-edge contemporary culture a few years late um, is nothing to be surprised. Um, even if it had been bang on time, um, as I say, I, I I didn't go through I didn't go through rave and I didn't go through much of um, I don't know what the correct name for it. You, you, you hear it called post-rave culture, you hear it called techno culture, you hear it called hardcore culture with an apostrophe A and a K. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, that was that was much more your thing than mine. 
Um, I could never like um, I could never find a necktie that matched the the day glow tie dye stuff well enough for me. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I did. I, I did try. Yeah, yeah. If I could have, if I could have found a tie, I could have made it work. Mm. Um, so, just to go back to your original question, um, we can keep coming back to this. Um, I think Zeitgeistish music is massively influential on Zeitgeistish TV. Mm. In the end, forming a band, making a record, playing a live show, is able to be much more cutting edge than anything on television because it can be so much faster and so much cheaper. That's right. Well, the turnaround time is it, it, it just radically shorter, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, we've we've talked about this before. Um, I believe you can listen to a song by the Rolling Stones and you can tell which quarter of which year. Mm. Um, it was pretty... Like, even if it's a song you've never heard before, mm-hmm. I bet you just from the sound of it, you can take a guess as to whether it was the first, second or third quarter of... 1964, 1965, 1966, seven or eight, mm. mm-hmm. um, just from the sound of it. And sure. that's, how, that's how fast things moved in those days. Television, I think television is an even slower moving medium than cinema because changing the style of a television program is like retooling the factory. Um, it's very much the equivalent of we need to, stop making this shape of Ford Fiesta now and we need to start making this shape of Ford Fiesta. Mm. You've got to scrap your tools, you've got to scrap your jigs, you've got to retrain all the production line workers because that's the nature of television. So I think television is doomed to be at least two years and maybe four years behind the cutting edge by which time of at least, uh, of course the cutting edge is no longer the cutting edge. There are parts of television production that can catch up much quicker. Um, After and um, textiles student or, or people who study textiles um, can have a fun argument about this. Um, whoever it was out of Mary Quant or Andre Corrèges um, who invented the mini skirt and the, the whole sort of um, the moon girl look um, in the spring of 1966, um, Doctor Who caught up on that one really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, Vicky was practically wearing Mary Quant clothes um, like with within a couple of months of that issue of Vogue coming out, mm-hmm. um, but I guess, I guess that was in part due to like the production schedule at the time, you know, and and the, and the almost kind of as live nature of of of, of t- television production at that particular point in history. Yeah, and I mean, um, just sort of following that through, uh, the impression you get uh, if you believe the people involved that wardrobe was so hard against it because Doctor Who was constantly facing demands for monsters. Yeah. Um, they would very often, like, just give someone a budget and pack them off down the King's Road and tell them to buy some clothes and stuff like that. Sure. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you're... And it's it's only a block or two away from Lime Grove. Mm. Um, so you could theoretically be getting ready to make an episode of Doctor Who on the Friday, and you could be... You could be on the King's Road or you could be on Carnaby Street buying clothes that have only just been released anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's an example. You can sort of at least, just because of the fact that Doctor Who was made in West London, 
that's a chance where you can be really, really hard up against the zeitgeist at any given time. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, modern TV and movies, I suppose the, the, the last real kind of zeitgeisty thing I can really think of would be when the massive prevalence of new metal, um, particularly in, 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 in cinema, but it crept into TV as well. Um, you know, the, you, you couldn't you, you couldn't turn around for, you know, like a, a Final Fantasy VI having a fucking opening title sequence featuring some, some you know, something by Papa Roach or some other cunts like that. Um, I remember that. Um, and this would have been when Die Another Day had come out and hadn't quite flopped. Your freedom came at too high a price. The mission was compromised. The same person who set me up then has just set me up again. So I'm going after him. Got your attention. Tell me what you know of James Bond. He'll light the fuse on any explosive situation. Tell me the diamonds. Don't blow it all at once. What happened to you? and be a danger to himself and others. I'm going to let him mix things up a little. My friends call me Jinx. My friends call me James Bond. Wow, now there's a mouthful. Who sent you? Your mama. Glad you can make it, Mr. Bond. I see you don't chase dreams, you live them. One of the virtues of never sleeping. I have to live my dreams. Time to draw the line. Well, it seems you've become useful again. Maybe it's time you let me get on with my job. So, this is where they keep you. For once, I was in agreement with the critics and the industry leaders in cinema who were adamant that the, the James Bond format, that the, the James Bond way of doing things was was, was absolutely finished. Sure. It, had, it had completely failed. I mean, I... I could see no grounds for disagreeing with those people at all. Mm. And their solution, which was horrifying but interesting, was to, to come up with triple X. I'll be with you guys in a minute. I noticed you got three X's on your neck. That's appropriate since you're looking at three strikes. Grand Theft Auto, reckless endangerment, and that little bridge stun of yours. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. But if you do what I want, I'll make all your criminal transgressions go away. I don't know who you think you're playing with. I don't play this game. Shut him up. I got a party. You get the chance to pay back Uncle Sam for all the wonderful freedom you enjoy. I live for this. What is this place? If you remember that. Is that, the, is that Vin Diesel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and remember, this is supposed to be... Triple X was supposed to be the, the, the start of a long-running franchise that was going that was kind of planned to replace James Bond in the public consciousness. Really? Yeah. And Triple um, X, the, um, the main character, was a new kind of secret agent um, mm. who, was the base, who was the bass player in a new metal band and an extreme sports star. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, I mean, it's, um, it's a crap film, um, and it's a crap idea, and... Um, but I can't. Re- that's the most recent time I can remember 
so the world of cinema or the world of popular entertainment taking a good long look at the zeitgeist and a good long look at itself and basically going like we're, we're out of touch we're out of step we're out of like what does popular culture even look like mm-hmm. I, I, pref- I always preferred the uh, James McAvoy uh, kind of Bondathon wanted one where they, where they bent the bullets that was good fun man <laughs> This is the mind-numbing black hole I call a job. And this is me, Wesley Gibson. Nobody. Like everybody else, I just keep waiting for a lotto ticket out of my boring existence and into a life that means something. I knew your father. My father died the week I was born. Your father died yesterday on the rooftop of the Metropolitan Building. He was one of the greatest assassins who ever lived. Then the other one is behind you. I thought he'd be taller. Shoot the wings off the flies. You're insane. Insanity is coasting through life and a miserable existence when you have a cage lion locked inside. I really think you have me mixed up with somebody else. Shoot the wings off the flies. Either you shoot or I do. Only a few people in the world can do that. You can't even see them! I've, I've never heard of this. Oh, it's great. Here's the idea, Doc. I can't remember the storyline at all, but the standout um, like MacGuffin from it, not even MacGuffin, like gimmick from it, um, James, McAvoy char- James McAvoy's character has got a, a technique of firing guns where he, just as he's about to pull the trigger, he like flicks his wrist and like flings his arm around so that the bullet kind of arcs out in a parabola so it can go around corners. <laughs> it's great. It's fucking brilliant, Doc. Oh, mate, <laughs> what I need to do, what I need to do, <laughs> what I need to do is to get my acquaintance, David, um, who is a firearms aficionado who yeah. moved to Arizona to pursue his love of firearms. <laughs> um, I need to find out if he's seen this. I need to get hold of him by the collar and I need to watch it together with him. Absolutely. He'll be absolutely furious, I bet you. But he'll, he'll be mesmerised. Oh, really? Yeah. He'll be mes- He will just sit there throughout the whole thing going, I didn't know people could be so stupid. <laughs> there I we go. <laughs> no, people could be... Um, and. Uh, from time to time, he'll turn to me and he'll say something like, "You do realise someone is now dead because they tried to do that." Mm. Oh yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah cause you, there are great, great scenes in it where you know our hero James McAvoy, bad guy, and in between, like some innocent, innocent civilian, and he's just kind of fight, chucking the bullets around them. Basically, it's brilliant. Oh, he, he, can can he do things like get the bullet around the hostage and into the into Correct. the terrorist? That's it. Got got it. it. Right. Great. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant, Doc. Yeah. Oh, God, I just love crap films. That's the thing, Doc. <laughs> well, I love crap films as well. Um, I, this actually ties into what we're talking about tonight and what we're going to be talking about next week. In preparation for um, when we do the two doctors, yeah, um, which is sooner than you think. Ah, um, well, it just is. It's mm-hmm. like it's it's no longer it's no longer the opposite side of flux. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Um, complete coincidence. Now, sorry, got to mention this. While we're recording the episode, I've got um, top of the pops um, Christmas retrospective. Mm-hmm. On on Channel Nine at the moment, 
and um, they're showing a clip of the Rolling Stones playing 2000 Light Years From Home, which is the most summer of 1967 record you can you have to listen like if if you listen to more than 15 seconds of it or if you look at the performance clip they've got there is no way this song was made any time other than that quarter of that year there we go doc yeah Mm -hmm. thesis Um, proved well not not proved yet but without me inviting it a piece of evidence just appeared (laughs) on the television in front of me there we go Um, Right, but yeah, um, in preparation for the two doctors, um, I'm doing some. Um, don't laugh when I say this. I'm reading some serious Jess Franco scholarship. At oh the yes, moment. of course, of course. That's <laughs> what you do, Doc. That's what you do. Um, but as much as I dislike the world and get disappointed by it sometimes, I'm happy to be in a world where serious Jess Franco scholarship exists. Mm. Um, I just really, specifically, there's a couple of episodes of the delightful. Daughters of Darkness podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back finally to another episode of Daughters of Darkness, which. Yay! Yay! <laughs> which we kind of promised months ago and then got sidetracked again, which is. As we do. Wonderful people. Very, very smart, funny people. Um, I could listen to them all day. I. There are some of those scholars and broadcasters who I enjoy listening to just as much when they're talking about a subject that I know I don't like as when I do. I'm, as, as you pontificate on this, Doc, I'm, I'm going to add those to my, uh, to my po- list of podcasts. Um, they're just massive fun. Um, yeah. they're, um, they remind me of like the old days of being sixth form age. And from time to time, you'd get to go and hang out with the university kids who were back on their Easter vacation or something like that. Mm. And you, you just sort of get to hang around with a bunch of people who were cleverer than you, better educated than you, more experienced than you. Um, and you you felt an older and wiser and, and more experienced and more rounded person after um, afterwards. That's all I can say. So this is Kat Ellinger and Sam... Dayhun, I don't know how to pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, right, yeah. Are they the guys, yeah? I think she calls herself Deegan. Deegan, there we go. Okay, added to the list, Doc. There we go. Um, um, should we get on with the show? Yeah, I think we should. Don't forget, guys, you can contact us on email at differentdocsos at gmail.com, on Twitter at different, and eventually you'll be able to do it on Facebook when I get my thumb out of my arse. Until then, though, let's get on with it. Jenkins? Yeah. Shut for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we, of course, you know by now, call Five Rounds Rapid. Tonight's story is the edge of destruction. Grandfather. Grandfather! The ship can't crash, it's impossible! something here inside the ship but that's not possible the doors were open but where would it hide in one of us something terrible is happening to all of us there's a strong force at work somewhere which is threatening my ship you sabotaged my ship oh don't be so stupid i know it i'm sorry but you attacked us how dare you 
Can it be possible then that this is the end? Written by David Whittaker, directed by only two episodes, but directed by two gentlemen. Richard Martin did episode one. He of all creatures, great and small fame. And also, did he not direct some of the Daleks as well, Doc, if my memory serves? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Richard Martin, or uh, as I tend to uh, refer to him, Richard can't fucking direct Martin. Mm, mm, okay, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, um, he... Um, he did the crap bit, like Christopher Dalek, Christopher Barry did the cool bits of the Daleks, mm. and Richard Martin did the crap bits. Yeah, um, didn't we make a tit of ourselves by by, by confusing some of uh, who directed what at some point? Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, and what it comes down to is that what I thought I knew to be fact was wrong, um, whereas if I'd stuck to instinct... And if I'd just gone, that episode's well-directed, that must be Christopher Barry. <laughs> and that episode's badly directed, that must be Richard Martin. Um, Richard Martin went on to turn in such stunning directorial performances as The Dalek Invasion of Earth and The Chase and The mm. Web Planet. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, before people jump on me, I believe all of those stories have very real strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a lot of them, um, and I like them a lot. Yes, even The Web Planet. Mm. Um, it's taken me 20 years, but I've come to love it. Um, of all of the strong points that those stories have, the direction is not a strong point for any of them. Fair enough, Doc. Episode two, directed by uh, one Frank Cox, uh, known for Doomwatch as well, by the way, as well as sci-fi classic, Take the High Road. There we go, Doc. Um, <laughs> music by... No musical credit here, Doc. Now, d- I presume that means that it, this is like stock music from the archives. It might not be from the archives. It might be, um, I strongly suspect, it's something by Tristram Carey. Right. Um, Let me double-check so, this, Doc. Um, I think it's like a reuse of some of the great long composition that Tristram Carey made, which first popped up in the Daleks. Sure. On the other hand, it could just be library stuff. Mm, mm. Um, um, main cast, well... It's just the regulars, isn't it? So, you know, it's our trusty uh, TARDIS team. Uh, William Hartnell as the Doctor, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Caroline Ford as Susan Foreman. Um, I think the, the credit that surprises me the most, Doc, is written by David Whittaker. I didn't know that David Whittaker was involved this far back in kind of Who canon. You've got me uncertain now. Um, I was convinced... Um, I was convinced David Whittaker was a pre-production hire. Really? Yeah. Because there's something tickling in the back of my mind that he was involved in in, in the script for the Daleks as well. That wasn't just solely Terry Nation. I, I mean, I could be wrong about this. I think he's one of those... All right. We'll come to this sooner or later. Yeah. Um, Doctor Who and Freemasonry and the British occult tradition um, and David Whittaker. <laughs> it's a thing I love to come back to. So, like, I'm I'm releasing a little more information mm. um, each time. Eventually, I want to come up with not really a completely serious thesis, but enough speculation for a decent book that 
Doctor Who is an exposition of a continuing and progressing modern British occult phenomena, mm-hmm. um, which embraces parts of Freemasonry, um, embraces parts of um, meta-biblical legend, um, and parts of the practice of alchemy as a real actual science in the modern sure. age and has its origins in Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology. Um, in keeping with the spirit of this, there needs to be a, a, a shadowy figure, a, a, a Pierre de Plantard type figure or a um, Hermes Trismegistus type figure in the background, whose name you never get to know and who never shows his face, but who's clearly pulling strings and manipulating events. And it's obvious to me that in the case of Doctor Who, that figure is always David Whitaker. And, and just for clarification, David Whitaker is credited as script editor from episode one, basically. So Unearthly Child onwards, his credit is script editor. Well, according to Wikipedia, Doc. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the job that he's credited for. <clears throat> it's obvious to me that David Whitaker's influence on the overall shape of Doctor Who was... Mm. Um, it was far more than character design, if you like. It was far more than just making sure that the scripts didn't have characters doing things out of character. Sure. And making sure that the... I think a lot of the job that people go on to understand the script editor is doing in Doctor Who, I think that was invented by David Whitaker. Yeah. Um, so... I think up until then, the job of a script editor would have been to have reviewed the scripts that the work-for-hire writers turned in, made sure that the characters were presented in a way that fitted their character, made sure that the storyline was progressing the way that they thought it should be progressing, um, and made sure that it didn't violate any of the key themes as defined by the producer. Mm-hmm. I think David Whitaker does a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um David Whitaker, um, I'm going to say David Whitaker did for the role of script editor what, at about the same time, John Entwistle did for the role of the bass player. So instead of being an important supporting member, what those guys did, did was to take their job and move it to a position of equal prominence alongside the producer or the guitar player. Entwistle or, being uh, the who? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. sure. Um the the first bass player anyone really paid attention to. Sure. Mm-hmm. And what um, a moustache that man had, by the way. Um, I still don't think I know what he looks like. Ah, it did, did just a glorious, glorious. You know, you know the the, the poster, "Your Country Needs You," and that wonderful handlebar moustache. He looks yeah. a bit like that. Just just just, oh, just with just with brown hair. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Actually. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I, I, I think David Whitaker did. And I think from what we can learn about David Whitaker, from what he wrote, I think he really reveled in this idea of being like the, the, the power behind the throne, being the, the secret influencer mm. or the, the puppet master who would like stand behind Verity Lambert and Sidney Newman who are the, 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 the left and right-hand pillars, the, the, the Boaz and Jackin figures. Um, and I think David Whitaker would have really relished this idea of him being the sort of Cardinal Richelieu character. Mm. Was Whitaker in, in kind of his other Doctor Who work, 
outside of script editor or kind of you know overarching figure that you're describing you know with, with his writing credit would you say that his other works are really boundary pushing and, and edgy because I'm thinking about this story you've got that really quite surprisingly disturbing scene with the scissors you know where, where yeah. Susan's brandishing the scissors and, and then she starts attacking the piece of furniture I thought it was surprisingly shocking actually um for something from 1964 um and and then also you know ju just this kind of apparent descent into madness that all of the characters seem to be experiencing to, to, to certain degrees it's pretty edgy isn't it doc um it is edgy and it's very much following contemporary theater and contemporary culture and right. for for a nice gentle middle-aged guy Whitaker is also one of these people who seems to have an almost supernatural ability to put his finger on what's going to happen in culture. The bit with, with, the, the bit with Susan and the Scissors reminds me so very much of when zombie Karen kills her mom in the basement in Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. <laughs> Um, in fact, Karen's mom is, I'm not saying there's an influence. I'm saying there's no overarching influence over both. Karen's mom has the same kind of haircut and the same kind of like tight knitted sweater that Barbara has. Right. Um, they're supposed to be the same kind of woman from the same kind of social class. Mm -hmm. And you've got the use of the scissors, which is um, a, it's not a weapon, it's a domestic tool. It's associated with sewing and it's associated with women's trades. Mm -hmm. um, and in both cases, you, you've, you've got this very clear, um, this very clear image of your children will turn on you. But I think the reason I found the scissors so, um, I mean, I'm not going to say traumatic, because that would be ridiculous. Some of the shit that I've watched in my time, but, you know, so disturbing is because they are so mundane, so every day. Um, I seem to remember a period in the late 80s, maybe maybe even up to the noughties, where things were getting quite sensorial about anything that could be used as, depicted as a weapon that could potentially be kind of fashioned from something or easily obtained. And, 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 and they certainly qualify, don't they, Doc? Yeah, um, I think um, even when it was released with all the sexual violence uncut, I think there was still a cut in The Evil Dead in which mm. the, 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 the pencil is used as a weapon.
stop those possessed by the spirits of the book is through the act of bodily dismemberment. Um, I think the pencil through the leg. Um, well, there's another famous pencil um, sequence that was a bit kind of sensibating, in, in, which is in the dark, uh, yeah, the Dark Knight, the the, the, the second of the Christopher Nolan Batman Batman movies. I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's... it's gone. Oh, and by the way, the suit, it wasn't cheap. You ought to know, you bought it. Sit. I want to hear proposition. Where <clears throat> I'm sure everybody knows, you know, they're, 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 there's a pencil kind of jabbed into a desk, st- sitting totally vertically, and the Joker says to what, like one of the henchmen, "Do you want to see a magic trick?" and slams his head down onto the table, right onto the pencil. And when the head is removed, there is no pencil anymore. And obviously, the guy is dead. I remember what you're talking about. I remember um, there being a lot of fuss about the um, the the, the, the weaponising of um, Easy, easily available object. Um, I think baseball bats were, were a target, weren't they? As well, you know, especially you know if you if you depicted a baseball bat that had kind of like, the screws and nails kind of jammed into it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it was because um, in the UK, at least, nobody had any good reason to have a baseball bat except mm. as a weapon. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, the baseball is not played in this country. Mm. Um, if it is played, it's only ever played somewhere where you go and they will store the equipment on site. There's no good reason for anyone to be carrying a baseball bat around with them. Mm. Um, can you? Re- I, I remember baseball bats. Um, can you remember whether the uh, the old favourite from the Sweeney, the uh, the, the, um, the pick handle, was ever? Uh, Treated in the same way. I mean, I can't specifically remember that. I mean, the things that come to mind would be the baseball bat, um, knuckle dusters was another kind of bogeyman, wasn't it? Almost, and obviously uh, uh, the the nunchucks. You know, or any scene involving nunchucks was 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 cut out of, you know, like like your Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Li kind of stuff. Um, knuckle dusters. Well. Knuckle dusters, I think, because they have no no other purpose than no. to be a weapon. No, of course, it, 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 it's just um, a weapon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think there were there were widespread. And honestly, I can really imagine this happening at my secondary school. Um, there were apparently like blind eyes being turned by teachers and shop class to kids making knuckle dusters. Mm, mm. Um, and I believe on at least one occasion to, kid, to, to children making nunchucks in metalwork class uh-huh. as well. There, there, there's definitely a craze for throwing stars, like ninja stars at my school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah great. I, 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 don't know whether, I don't know whether you ever tried fighting or training or doing some exercise with nunchucks, but unless you actually are a ninja master, the only person you're ever going to hurt with nunchucks is yourself. Exactly. Well, you just, you just get black eyes, don't you, basically? Yes. <laughs> you just smack yourself in the face and in the balls, yeah. Um, <laughs> or round the back of the head. or That's it, yeah. Um, 
<coughs> no, just stick. Children, stick to your pick handle. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, Doc, this danger signal that suddenly started blaring. Hmm. Do we ever see this again, or is this a one-off? The closest you get is the cloister bell, isn't it? Sure. That, 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 that's what I thought of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but but this isn't like a, a, a common feature in, in these early Hartnell stories that was, no. that was ditched at some point. Um, so let's burrow into that thing a bit more. Apart from the obvious plot, which isn't even a plot, um, we've got to save some money. We've got to waste two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to get a bit more of a look at the TARDIS and what it is and what makes it tick. Mm. And it would be a good chance to, I think, clear some antagonisms and get our characters onto a bit more of an even footing and have them... um, They do this in modern soap opera, don't they? They'll find some excuse to lock up two characters in a room or in a situation um, and spend an episode like working out their differences or something like that. Mm Yeah, or, or, or um, you know, suddenly realising that actually they are desperately in love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is all stuff that was coming out of contemporary theatre at the time. And I, as usual, I can't resist mentioning Samuel Beckett. And, and you know, Samuel Beckett is, 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 is the obvious one. Um, you know, where Samuel Beckett would make a whole entire play out of two characters on a stage with one prop. Um, and there are cultural reasons. I mean, I, I, sooner or later, I'm going to end up talking about um, Miles Davis's final four albums for Prestige Records um, when he ditched the very overcomplicated, overcomposed Charlie Parker influenced material that had made up his early career and returned to very, very simple um, rhythms and very, very simple melodic structures. You've got Samuel Beckett's approach to theatre. Um, I suppose you've got a lot of visual arts going on at the same time. Um, you know, you, you've, you've got people doing a painting, which is a very pale grey square on a slightly darker grey background. And I suppose after the excess of World War II and the prosperity of the 50s, people began to want to think about what they could take away in order to get, you know, instead of adding more to get more, why don't we see what we can do with that? Mm-hmm. Because it's David Whitaker and because David Whitaker is a genius, um, I think he paid attention to that. And you know, what kind of a Doctor Who story can we get with no new sets, no new costumes, no guest actors? Um, I don't think it's a very good Doctor Who story, and I'm fucking glad it didn't go on for more than two two episodes. I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Doc, because it, I, I I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I like the I like the bottle nature of it. I liked the fact that it, it did seem like they were all going crackers. Um, it felt incredibly paranoid. Um, I, I, I do agree with you. I, I would not have wanted it to, to, to go on any any longer. I, th- I thought two two episodes was the perfect length. Um, but but you know for that fifty minutes, doc, I was thoroughly thoroughly satisfied and entertained. Would it be more correct then for me to say? I think it's good drama. Mm. I think it's good theatre. I don't think it's very good. I'm very glad it wasn't used as the pattern or model for any future iteration of Doctor Who or other. Oh, yeah, that's a great point, Doc. Yeah, yeah. Because of course this is so early. And yeah. they could they could have ran with kind of any of the any of the early story formats, couldn't they, really? That's right. 
yeah, um, yeah, that's a I really mean, great point. I would like to make the point that 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 um, Edge of Destruction is very close to what a lot of Out of the Unknown mm. ended up. So. Out of the Unknown is definitely the hardest, the hardest of hard sci-fi television programs that the BBC has ever done. And because of small budgets and because of um, the, I won't say desperation, because of their keenness to present themselves as proper drama and not Doctor Who, they went as theatre heavy as they possibly could. So a lot of Out of the Unknown is minimal sets, minimal cast. Um, and just concentrate on the one single concept and drill all of the drama you can out of that one concept. Um, here's a situation. Mm-hmm. What if the whole entire world was run by a machine that keeps everything running perfectly and nobody has to worry about anything? What if the machine stops working someday? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, mm-hmm. How um, how does this affect this one woman? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Obviously, the... the, the this is a two-parter. It feels like a real curio. Was this driven by um, like budgetary requirement? Was a script kind of lost or did, just didn't work out and they had to pull two episodes out of their asses, a bit like um, Inferno, perhaps? Did, 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 any, any knowledge here, Doc? Before we do Chow next week, um, I must do something that I should have done before we started chatting this evening. Uh, I must go back and read my copy of Doctor Who, The Early Years. Sure the definitive reference work on season one um, and that will tell me all about it so i'm going to defer that question until next week fair enough doc yeah no problem at all um <clears throat> what did i make you look so ridiculous doc please wandering wandering around looking like fucking hugh hefner was, was, was that a deliberate attempt to kind of undercut his character do we think or was that just it looked okay at the time it's a good question isn't it um i just put it under the category of mistakes i made Mm. Two possibilities for me that I thought. Well, three. You know, the two that I mentioned, like a deliberate attempt to undercut his character um, by making him look preposterous. Um, it just it didn't look preposterous at the time. It just looked fine. Um, and, and, and obviously, fashion sensibilities change. And thirdly, perhaps to give the idea of the of the TARDIS, the ship, being their home. And where do we wear our dressing gown? Kind of at home, where we're comfortable and relaxed and feeling safe. Well, this is something that this is something that I really wish they'd made more of. Um, <clears throat> in Doctor Who, 
you've never really got the sense that the TARDIS is the Doctor's hope. Um, when we get to talk about Carnival of Monsters in the far and distant future, Carnival of Monsters has got like one of these. This happens in the two Doctors as well. Carnival of Monsters has got one of these parallel Doctor and his companion pairings in it. Um, so there's 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 Vorg, uh, who's an alien Carney, um, and his assistant Sherna, um, who are obviously supposed to be a parallel version of the Doctor and Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, Vorg is broke and cheap, and he'll try to con everyone he meets and steal stuff. Um, and as to whether he's like actually pimping his assistant, probably not, but maybe. Sure. Um, and the big difference between, let's say, Vorg and the Doctor and these other parallels that you meet later on um, is the Doctor will never ever go short of food and shelter. Um, the doctor the doctor has the TARDIS, which provides shelter for him and also provides him with warmth and food. The Doctor will never have to be under it, will, will never have to be scrounging for pennies under a, uh, under a railway bridge um, and will, will, will never have to be sucking cocks in Dudley Best Station for, for pocket change. Mm. Um, the fact that the Doctor and his companions have a home and don't get and, and don't have to get cold, and don't have to run out of clothes, and don't lack basic nutrition, is a really, really important thing about Doctor Who, and is a really important thing about the Doctor's character. But we almost never see the TARDIS being presented as somewhere where people actually live now, do we? No, we don't. And and, 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 and like the console room itself is, is, is not an inviting place, is it? You know, really, well, certainly in classic Who, they've changed it up a bit in modern Who, but in classic Who, you know, really brightly lit, there's nowhere to there's nowhere to sit, there's nowhere even to rest, really, because if you lean on the console, there's, there's fucking buttons everywhere that you probably don't want to be pressing, or levers that you don't want to be, you don't want to be switching. Um, the, no. console room, the console room is clearly a place of work. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the console room was designed to, it doesn't look the same, but people who would have been used to serving in World War II or seeing World War II war movies, it's supposed to be the bridge of a submarine or the bridge of a destroyer or the cockpit of a bomber. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be that place, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other places I can think of that, we, that, that we've seen, certainly in, in, in classic Who, would be, isn't there, isn't there like, a, like a wardrobe room um, when, when Romana is like post-regeneration Romana? And that's about it, Doc. I'm struggling after that. Well, the, the, the wardrobe is mentioned. Um, you never see it. Um, and obviously that's a joke because it's where Romana goes to change her costume and change her body as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, um, the, the closest we get is uh, actually in The Invasion of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we get to see there's a swimming pool in the TARDIS. Mm. Oh, that's um, right, Yes. Uh, pe- people hate the TARDIS interior as shown in The Invasion of Time, but I think it ties in really, really nicely to this story. Mm. Um, if we imagine that a Time Lord owns a TARDIS for long enough, because of dimensional transcendentality, and you know, in the context of the 60s and 60s experiments with Eastern religion, let's remember what transcendental means. Um, you know, that the, the, the human mind can take on a mystical dimension. Mm-hmm. Um well, we, 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 we kind of trans, transcend from, from 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 this plane to different planes of existence, don't we, Doc? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is 
this concept comes up in Doctor Who a little earlier than um, it did in um, like when it became trendy because of George War- um, George Harrison following the Maharishi Mahesh Yogai, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is when transcendentality first probably entered the, the the common vocabulary of people in the UK. Sure. So if you can imagine, if if, if we imagine that the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental, and then possibly that the, the TARDIS takes on characteristics of the mind of the Time Lord who, who who owns it or who uses it for long enough. In the Invasion of Time, the interior of the TARDIS is played by the, the, the location that's used is a disused lunatic asylum. Mm. Um, well, we've talked about this before, haven't we? You, you can even see some of the, the stuff in the background, you know, that clearly identifies it as such. Well, yeah, um, definitely. I don't know. Do, do, do we need to see the TARDIS as kind of a a place where people live and relax. I mean, we didn't see oh. it, and, and and I don't think the program ever suffered as a result. No, um, I mean it's <laughs> um, does anyone has anyone ever watched James Bond for uh, uh, have any James Bond films ever been greatly bothered about that we never the fact that we never see, get to see James Bond's house. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I have. Or, you know, we, we never see Jack Bauer going for a wee in 24. things we, we we just have to kind of accept these things don't we well or hey here's an idea maybe we can imagine them for ourselves yeah wow doc you've just blown my fucking mind <laughs> doc shall we get on with the next part of the show yes let's commander you are authorized to use the mind probe what no not the mind probe Welcome to part three of the show, which we call No, Not the Mind Probe. Here we just talk about general influences. Um, Bit of info first, though. Broadcast dates for the Edge of Destruction. Um, 8th of February, 1964 to the 15th of February. Obviously, just two episodes. Uh, US film releases of note, just two. Um, The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Look, then run for your life. Incredible is the word for the world's first monster musical. See in magnificent Eastman color, the daring, dancing, enticing, and horrifying, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. From the innocence of music and laughter comes the twilight of terror. Along the midway, scantily clad dancers luring the young lovers into the sideshows. See the dancing girls of the carnival murdered by the incredible night creatures of the midway. 
will know that something evil lies ahead for me. An unspeakable pit of dismal subhuman monsters who drool and gibber, moaning for the thrill of revenge. Incredible are the songs, the gaiety, the zombie stomp of those who will stop living. And then the mix-up, trickery, and the device to ruin. See the hunchback of the midway fight a duel of death with the mixed-up zombies, turning men into monsters twisted, tormented human vultures, yearning to kill incredible creatures clutching at the thin thread of their miserable lives. Human vultures, only the weird zombies remain. Obey. Who is the woman branded in birth wearing the ward of horror? Do as Madame Estrella said. The world's first monster musical. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Is the first <laughs> one. And the second one is seven days in May. plot to take over the government. This may occur sometime this coming Sunday. There are some who will say, it can never happen here. But this is the story of how it could happen in seven days of intrigue, of blackmail, of terror, an eternity of suspense. This is the astounding story of a military plot to overthrow the government of the United States, which, if successful, would change the fate of every American. Never fucking heard of him, Doc. How about you? Um, incredibly strange creatures I've heard of because it, is, is it is it Dennis Steckler? I d- literally never heard of it. I, d- I just do not know. It's one of those films that you you couldn't avoid the title mm. when, when you first when when if you were me if you were my age and you began to get into the strange phenomenon called cult films. Mm. And I, I put myself at like age fifteen or sixteen, and I got into it through a book called Cult Movies. Mm which was in our public library. It was badly falling to bits and it was remaindered shortly after that. I tried very hard to buy it when it went into the 20 pence bin, but someone beat me to it, the bastard. <laughs> yeah, and you've never um, forgiven them. You've never forgiven them to this day. And I, I mean, what it did was it left me with memories, like a, a bunch of half-remembered essays and a bunch of titles. Um, that was the book where I first heard the titles of Second mentioned this evening, uh, Daughters of Darkness, the actual mm. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, A Clockwork Orange, Taxi Driver, um, um, and um, The Incredibly Strange Creatures who something something and became mixed up zombies. Um, and I, I think because it's such an obviously publicity-baiting title and it worked, mm. the title of that film comes up wherever, used to come up, whenever people wanted to sound knowledgeable, uh, usually whilst trying to impress girls um, about B-movies or bad movies or cult movies or so. Um, never seen it myself. Um, I And I suspect this is true of most people who claim to have seen it. Um, I know it by title alone. Sure, yeah. And, and, and uh, last, the UK number ones during broadcast of this story, just the one, a track called Why by Anthony Newley. I 
because I love you I'll always love you so Why? Because you love me No broken hearts for us Cause we love each other And this was number one, Doc. Check this out. 5th of February to the 3rd of March. So for four or five weeks straight. Very impressive. Um, Am I right? Am I, yeah. um, Anthony Newley was a... a, a I have heard um, Wishing No Libel is a candidate for being the father of Benedict Cumberbatch. I've got no idea. I don't even know who Anthony Newley is. Um, he was pretty much the definition of a face on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um like a terrible actor who was associated with predominantly with Joan Collins. Um, I believe he dated Anna Quills, who was Polly for oh, a yes. while. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, um, he was an attractive man. Um, being in the West London theatre and acting scene in the mid 1960s um, was around a lot of warm-blooded, enthusiastic, generously-spirited young women. Delicately, <laughs> um, but, sir, yeah. And um, I think he and many of those people um, found themselves um, found themselves on, on a wavelength, we'll just say that. Yeah, well, I'm just looking up um, Benedict Cumberbatch here to see if we can find any suggestion of, <laughs> of, of parent parentage. Well, his, his, I, I believe his mother is uh, Wanda Vantham, who was in The Faceless Ones and also uh, Image of the Fendal. You're right. Um, and um, I think she, had, uh, she, she and he have been rather sort of protective about the, the, the identity of his father. Well, the father listed here is Timothy Colton Congdon Cumberbatch. Um, sounds like a good working class guy, doesn't he? Doc, any influences you 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 can extract from this? What do we think? Well, it's soap opera, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's not a soap opera as Doctor Who would get by two thousand and five. Yeah, you know where we had apparently you threatened me with. We've, we've had some of Rose's family and you threaten me with the fact that we get more of Rose's family. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not, not looking forward to those bits, but mm-hmm. if they're there, then I guess they're there. Yeah. Um, Coronation street and kitchen sink drama. So we'll say Saturday night and Sunday morning and a mm. taste of heaven um, and up the junction and things like that were um, cultural presences. Um, and I think possibly the idea of doing um, a, a, a Doctor Who kitchen sink drama or a Doctor Who like angry young man drama, um, or effectively doing an episode of Doctor Who where it's harking back to what you said a little while ago. It's the domesticity of the situation that's more of a threat than any actual killer aliens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I I don't know what you took away from this. I got the and it's it's possibly this is possibly just functioning on a meta level for me because I hate soap opera so much. Um, 
I assumed they were going mad because of the banality of the domestic situation. That's interesting, isn't it? That's a bit like, um, what's the bloody, um, oh shit, uh, er- Eraserhead. That, that, that's kind of got a, a similar conceit, hasn't it? You know? Yeah, definitely. That you know that 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 crushingly, oh, awkward and painful family meal um, sequence, well, for example. And since we mentioned it, um, it happens to be in a bad part of New York, and like mom and dad happen to be a lesbian couple. But sure. it, it, it's the same plot in Driller Killer, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just mundanity. Basically, yeah. driving you to the point of insanity. Yes. Um, yeah, very, very interesting point, Doc. I got um, heavy kind of Rosemary's baby vibes as well. Do you have children? No. Uh, we planned to. Oh, it's a wonderful apartment. I love it. See what she's trying to do? She's trying to get you lower the rent. <laughs> oh, please, let's take it. Are you pregnant? No, not yet. No, you're not religious, my dear, are you? You know how actors are, they're all a bit self-centered. Um, God. Just in terms of tone, just the way that it felt, just that, that strange, paranoid, claustrophobic feel um that you get like when Mia Farrow is in is in her apartment and she's you know she's starting to have strange thoughts about what the baby actually is what the baby's going to be you know um I think the fact that uh like Susan I mean not not identical but she's not utterly dissimilar to Mia Farrow is she Jacqueline here? no, no um, I mean I was going to point out that Carolyn Ford has the same haircut mm-hmm. Oh, Carolyn Ford, sorry, yeah, not 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 Jacqueline, yeah. Carolyn Ford, yeah, um, it, exactly. You know, you 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 know, you've got you've got you know, kind of similarity in styling. Um, well, um, Carolyn Ford's got the, the the pixie cut and the saucer eyes, and yeah. she's because of the labour regulations, she's played by a woman who's much older than the character, so you get you get the same child woman mm-hmm. vibe. Um, from her as you do and obviously knowing now what we know about Roman Polanski then that there's 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 a good reason for that like <laughs> child woman thing to crop up in in Rosemary's Baby sure um, have you seen Repulsion this is Carol Adieu young beautiful desirable men found her irresistible but something is happening to her something that she doesn't quite understand <laughs> 
and soon she will be swept up in a frantic fury of repulsion. Repulsion, a frightening film that takes the everyday world and distorts it. Uh, I have but many, many years ago, Doc. That, that, yeah. Is that the one? Oh, no, maybe I'm thinking of, uh, is it is it Tenant that I'm thinking of? Uh, it could be the Tenant as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, what is it? I was told about an apartment. Damned hard to find an apartment these days, Monsieur. Trilkovsky. This is a very quiet building. Are you married? I'm very quiet myself and I'm a bachelor. Bachelors can be a problem too. But I like you. The lucky lodger, huh? Uh, <laughs> I'm a vulture. Oh, come on, get off my back, will you? Uh. Mm -hmm. that, that, that would stand just as he... Um, I don't think anyone does that creeping power, and I mean possibly because of, the, of, of his ethnicity, and possibly because of experiences of having been observed by secret police. Sure. I don't think anyone does that creeping paranoia. Um, it, it's almost, to coin a phrase, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean like, doesn't mean there isn't someone out to get you. Yeah, I thought the opening sequences of this particular Doctor Who story were really reminiscent of, of a TNG story called Conundrum. I don't know if you remember this one, Doc, where I think it's Series Five, <clears throat> um, some kind of probe of course um it's it, 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 been investigated by the enterprise and suddenly it, it, the probe kind of sends this beam of energy and it scans all of the crew and 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 he knocks everybody out knocks them all unconscious everybody wakes up and they can't remember who they are um and so then then they have to spend like the, the rest of the episode trying to figure out exactly their roles on the ship basically who am i you know so wharf takes the role of captain initially because he's got the sash. So he thinks he must be in charge. Um, and it, it just really, really reminded me of it, Doc. It's a similar kind of opening setup. Um, the whole thing, the whole conception of the episode feels very Star Trek. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but predates really? Trek, you know, by even original Trek by a good few years. So I think probably the conclusion we can come to is that there's, there's, there's a common ancestor for both yeah. of them. As usual, either, yeah. Either in comic book or literary or film science fiction. Mm. But um, I don't think it's out of the question that, that Trek could have ripped off who, is it? You know, for example, Ian's getting water from that thing that is obviously like an early version of a replicator. Um, I, I'm more willing to suggest that it's common ancestry. I've yeah. got no idea when Doctor Who was first... Show, uh, was, was first... Right. I've got no idea when early Doctor Who was first shown in the US. Sure. Um, I know Colour Doctor Who was shown really quite on in the life of those episodes, but I I don't think Black and White Doctor Who ever made it onto PBS. Mm. Ever, because when I was first starting to collect videos, um, <clears throat> I would go to Australia or New Zealand for John Pertwee-era material. I'd go to West Germany... Um, for Super Channel, 
for Tom Baker era material. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that all of these things were also available in the US. And I I knew some people in the US, but I, I never leaned on them very heavily because I had no way of playing NTSC. If anyone had ever told me that they had black and white era material in the US, I would have burst my balls to have got it and I would have burst my balls to have got an NTSC playing machine from somewhere. Sure. But I I never got any clue that anyone had that anyone in the US had had, had black and white era material. Mm. So I I don't know when it was ever shown in the um people in Paramount, um yeah, I bet you they had review copies. Um I I I the, thinking about it actually, there's no way the BBC salesman wouldn't have loaned them some Doctor Who to watch to find out if they wanted to buy it. Mm. And, 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 you know, at that time, surely, you know, like the BBC output was, you know, considered premium content, wasn't it? Um, so, you know, if, if, if you're working in American television at that time, surely you're watching the, the, the genre-specific stuff that's going to help inform and, 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 and educate and, and, and help you make... Um, stock, stock. What do you think? Um, I, I mean, that's soon after the McCarthy era. Remember, Doctor Who would still have been the product would, would still have been considered yeah. the product of a communist organisation. Oh, really? Yeah, Reds under the bed and all that stuff. Um, well, just the fact that it, it, it was made by a state-owned broadcaster. Mm. A bit too close to socialism for uh, yeah. McCarthy's yeah McCarthy's liking. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they touched anything BBC with a shitty stick in those days. How about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a bit, a bit of um, a bit of political history there from the doc, which is what this section is all about. Um, doc, should we get on to the last part of the show? Unless you've got anything further to add to this section? Um, no, I, I'm just going to make a supporting statement on that. Yeah. Um, UK TV companies did not enjoy a good relationship with US TV companies at the time. Mm. When a lot of US actors and scriptwriters were driven out of the, or, uh, like, were unconstitutionally had their uh, had their right to make a living taken away. Um, it's legal, but it's unconstitutional. <clears throat> um, and a lot of them relocated to the UK and worked for the then very newly formed ITV. Um, which is, if, for instance, you watch The Adventures of Robin Hood or The Adventures of Sir Lancelot or something, you'll find very obvious cack-handed references to, uh, you know, we we, um, we must fight for the freedom of our nation and, um, you know, not, not, not all of our greatest enemies are outside our own country. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think... UK TV and US TV were giving each other a very wide berth. Um, and I think that probably went on until like Jerry Anderson and ITC did, did, did a lot of healing on that. Sure. That's really, really interesting, Doc. I, I, I just kind of assumed that if you were a professional working in that industry in both directions, you would want, you know, I'm a, I'm a British executive, TV executive making trying to make quality sci-fi. I'm going to do my fucking homework and, and I'm going to watch the American equivalent just to see what my competition is. And, and I thought I, I thought it would work both ways. No, conversely, um, and you, you've got to bear in mind that in 1964, the British Empire was still in business. The UK mm -hmm. was a superpower. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it had its own nuclear power and nuclear weapons program. Um, it had far, it, it possessed far more foreign dependencies than the US did. Mm. Um, there's no good reason why the people running the BBC would have felt the need to to, to get American permission or American inspiration or American anything to do a damn thing. Mm, mm. I'm, not, I'm not talking about like permission. Just, just basic due diligence. I would, I would have thought, as, as, as a professional television making person. Um, but once again, I don't think anyone, including Americans, thought that television was up. You know, um, what America, what what the US did was cinema. Sure, uh, it's um, interesting, Doc. Yeah. If you were, if if you were working in the UK, um, the, the the American thing you admired was cinema. The American, yeah. the, the American thing you didn't admire was American TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good, yeah, Re- really, really, really good points, Doc. Anything else before we uh, crack on with the last part of the show? No, you carry on. museum piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. Here we're going to talk about production, costumes, effects, direction, etc. Doc, what do you make of the production here? Well, it, the, there isn't a lot to like or dislike, is there? I mean, mm-hmm. it, I spent enough time talking about how great the TARDIS set was. Yeah. Um, in An Unearthly Child. And it, it, what do you know? It, it was a great set and it's still a great set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, did um, you see it in the Dalek stock? I can't remember. You see three, two or three walls of the console room. Mm. Mm. Um, I need to say this because I need to give credit where credit is due. I think Caroline Ford comes close to turning in an absolutely sterling performance. I, I, I think she touches greatness in this. Yeah, I agree. I, I've been critical of her in, in the first two stories. For good reason. Yeah, generally just the weak link in that TARDIS team. But yeah, but here, yeah, I, yeah, I think she's on point. Um, I think you're going to enjoy the sense rights. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. I think, like... Um, for at least half of its running time, and I wish they'd done it more. The Sensorites is the one where, like, at long, long last, they, 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 they give Susan pretty much a story to herself. Um, and I, I, it, I, it is a difficult character to write for. I do understand why they struggled. There's a whole bunch of... When we get round to The Rescue, um, which is very near the beginning of season two, mm. um, I don't know what happens because it's like suddenly... Vicky isn't a greatly different character to Susan. Maureen O'Brien, I don't think, is a much better actress than Caroline Ford, but there's something in the energy of the writing and the conception of the character and the actress who's playing her. Um, it's obvious that Vicky ended up with some leftover Susan scripts. Sure. Um, but it's almost like Maureen O'Brien gets hold of this character and does her own thing with the character. And then when Maureen O'Brien starts doing that, suddenly all the writers go, oh, now I suddenly get what this character is supposed to. And all the directors go, oh, and now I can read these scripts. Now I know how to shoot the character and where to put the character in the screen. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 all comes, it, it all comes from Maureen O'Brien um, and this absolutely lovely chemistry that Vicky has with the first Doctor. Um, and you really get the idea that Full of life, energetic, childlike, but not childish character 
who's given this grumpy old man a new lease of life. Sure. And if you believe the stories, well, that's actually the relationship that Maureen O'Brien and William Hartnell had as well. Ah, are we talking um, coitus or, or just... No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. I mean, just... Um, oh, no, definitely not. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... William Hartnell, quite late in life and quite sick, um, at the risk of getting a bit Hollywood romantic comedy, um, because the holiday is on in 45 minutes' time. Um, and it's a cliche in its own right. The dried up old entertainment industry professional um, who suddenly meets a vivacious youngster who reminds him about all the stuff he's been missing. Mm-hmm. It, um, sounds like a, it sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie. Any time over the last ten years, Doc. They've all turned into that. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'll, I'm really fascinated to what to observe, like what you get out of season two, mm. um, because I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful transformation for the program and the people involved, and all of the groundwork, all of the foundations that have been laid during season one. Um, suddenly start to bear fruit. Mm, mm. Um, I've only got two notes for um, for this section personally. Um, we've touched on one already with the music. Um, you said maybe it's not archive music, but something that um, had already been Kerr. written. Yeah. Well, who, what's the name again, Doc? Tristan Carey. So yeah. um, he, he composed a lot of music not all of which was used in the Daleks mm-hmm. and like bits of his comp- b- bits of his sessions for that story crop up in the faceless ones and they also crop up again in inferno sure so, so maybe that maybe that's what's happening here I, I thought it was great um really 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 again just creepy paranoid totally suitable to to what was happening I thought I thought it elevated stuff remarkably well um so I really really enjoyed that um and my, only, my only other point really is, is, is obviously like Hartnell's fluffs, basically. There were plenty of them, especially towards the end of episode two. Now, I, I, I don't begrudge Hartnell this at all. It's just the nature of TV production, production at that time. But it, it did make me think, you know, how how difficult that must have been for the other actors. Any thoughts, thoughts on that, Doc? Um, I, I think if you... Um, were any kind of a solid theatre professional? Yeah, um, I think it's 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 stuff you just learn to live with. Right. Uh-huh. Um, in the far, far, far distant future, we'll get onto Stones of Blood, um, and just watch the way that a, a serious professional actor like Mary Tam watch the way that Mary Tam wrangles Beatrice Lehman. Oh, great! Yes, that's uh, Professor. Um, Professor Rumford, is it? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and just 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 watch the way that Mary Town very, very gently feeds her cues and her prompts. Sure. It's death, um, isn't it? it? I know exactly what you're talking about, Doc. It's death yeah. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's a skill you 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 acquire if you're used to theatre. Sure. If, so if you've trodden the boards, basically, this, this just, it just comes naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by way of a bit of a conclusion to to overweight underpowered museum piece, sure. Um, I want to sort of chuck a couple of threads in the air that I aim to pick up next week. Mm. Um, what have we learned about the nature of two parters? And what have we learned about the nature of two parters in the sixties? 
Mm-hmm. Um, what I've said during the course of this episode is that um, there's there's some David Whitaker Masonic mysticism. Um, <clears throat> we're supposed to think of the TARDIS as a magical object, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yes, and in, in fact, that you know, even if not before, certainly that's the that's the, the theme here, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a um, living thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, for all that Doctor Who is supposed to be science fiction. David Whitaker wants the TARDIS to be magic and not science, doesn't mm-hmm. he? It, it's more fantastical than than science based, isn't it? Yeah, um, and this sort of. I'm just going to bring up again very, very quickly my... There's a repeated set of iconography in the fact that the TARDIS is a box and it's like a Greek barrier marker and it's got what might be a Caduceus or a staff of Asclepius painted on the door. Um, And if that's true, then that makes the Doctor an emissary of the god Hermes, who is represented by Mercury. Um, And the god Hermes has the... Um, the gifted ability to um, transgress any barrier and to pass into the land of the dead. Um, and there's there's too much of the stuff that Whitaker brings up and keeps bringing up for it not to be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even think it's possible for it to be a coincidence by now. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you gave me... A, you, you negated the, the coincidence there, Doc. Um, too many yeah, things that he brought up for not to be. A, you meant the opposite, yes. didn't you? Yeah, you I meant did. the opposite. Yeah, too, sure. Too many of these. Too many of these things that Whitaker brings up for it to be a coincidence. That's it. We got it. Yeah, we've we've got the logic, Doc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you keep your eye out, Doc, because you're you're very very good at spotting these things, and I am not. Um. Well, I mean, we've we've been to Whitaker before um, in our past, but in the series future, um, in the Power of the Daleks, and I mean, mm. once once again, for no good reason. Um, you've got the significance of Mercury. Um, you've got the transformative power of Mercury. Um, you've got the Doctor um, once again uh, manifesting another one of Hermes attributes, which is to be able to change his form. Yeah. Um, another one of Hermes attributes, which is to be able to effortlessly impersonate or to be figures of authority. So the Doctor pretends to be Earth, the, the, the Earth examiner. Mm. Um, you've got the use of static electricity. Um, which keeps coming up again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and Very literally, uh, the power of the Daleks, by the way. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what the power of the Daleks is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if every time we get some Whitaker, um, we get more and more of the stuff, as in the Mercury Swamps on, on, on Vulcan. Sure. There's even the name of that planet. Um, it's a reference to uh, Hephaestus, the blacksmith of the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, as in the Mercury Swamps on Vulcan, every time some, some, some Whitaker is around, we get the stuff bubbling to the surface. Mm. Um, and I, I think we're, we're going to keep seeing more and more and more of it. Um, we're even going to see a bit of it in the Sontaran experiment, which we'll come to next week, and it, it, it's, it, it's a very different beast. Um, although it does some of the same things, um, it deals with it deals with the transgression um, so we've talked about the sort of the the, the, the matricidal transgression that's at, at the centre of the story. Um, in the Sontara experiment, as befits its status as a piece of trash culture from the mid seventies, we've got some like unapologetic sexual sadism. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
I did. I, I watched the Sontaran experiment earlier today, and it, I was astonished actually by some. But of course, we'll get to we'll get to that next week. Yeah. Um. So here's what I think two parters are for. They're to put front and center a single idea that the writer doesn't want to get lost as a subplot in a larger story, but can't carry a larger story by itself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I mean, my, my take on, you know, what, why this is a two-parter, I think it's like a neat little idea, a neat little curio. It certainly could not carry more, you know, kind of more than this. But 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 also, I would say, at, at, at one part, it would it would feel insubstantial, insignificant, almost irrelevant. So I think yeah, it, yeah. it kind of requires the two episodes to make you take it seriously. For me, it's it, but 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 you know, that's a, that, that's subjective, isn't it? Yeah, forty-five minutes is is, is a really golden time for me. Mm. Um, one of my favourite television series. I go. I, I leave it alone, and whenever I come back to it, I remind myself how much I love it. One of my favourite television series is Danger Man, mm-hmm. and it very it, it's very low key, very small. Um, the plots are not big, and they, they, they don't have great consequences. Very often, it's about like saving one document or saving one person. So it, it, it's it's definitely not James Bond scale. Spectre will destroy the world or take over the world kind of scale. Um, and the stories don't need more than 45 minutes. Mm. And they can appear to move slowly by modern standards, et cetera, et cetera. And with some decent editing, you could lose a lot of the running time. You, you, but then you realise that the setup and the establishing shots, by modern rules of television, there's no characterization. There's no bit where a character get extemporizes on their own backstory. Mm-hmm. And what it is... All of that background stuff, all of the bits where two characters have a drink together or have a smoke together or go for a ride in a taxi, all of that's <laughs> all of that stuff fills out the background of the situation and the characters. And it does the job of exp- exposition, but it means you don't have to labor the exposition, ladle the exposition on with a trowel. Mm-hmm. What we were talking about earlier, do less in order to do more. There's less exposition. If you like, there's less plot. Because you get the added benefits of the nice background locations and the nice sets and the interesting characters, you learn all of that stuff without it being shouted in your face. Sure. If you're used to 45-minute Danger Man, when you go back and you try and watch season one, which are 25-minute episodes, you lose all of that... you lose all of that stuff that you start off thinking is just background or decoration. But after a while, when you get more mature, you realise that's the story. And, and is it totally episodic? So 45 minutes done, 45 minutes done, no carryover. That's right. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, there's a few characters who pop up in more than one episode. Um, there's a running joke that there's a, um, there's a character played by Susan Hampshire, and I think she's in three different episodes. Mm. Um, and um, Drake, John Drake, our main character, in a different disguise, um, runs into her when she's just broken up with someone, um, and she's tipsy and suicidal. Mm. Um, and the plot of the episode is 
basically um, him trying to stop her from doing something stupid or run off with another loser bloke and solve his own case um, and stop her from in, stop her from trying to be helpful and interfere in his in, in, in his case and ruin everything at the same time sure um, so she, she's she's a, I think she's the only like semi-regular character there is mm. um, and she's the exact same character and she does exactly the same thing and it's never played for laughs but it's it's all it's always lovely and funny and so the point I want to make is when you first get into that series you watch it for the gadgets and the car chases and the punch-ups um, and the big dramatic reveals when you've watched it more and more and more you realize you're watching it for the background filler because mm. that's actually where without anyone going and now I'm going to tell you the backstory of this character you realize that you know all about these people I, I think this is comparable to the uh, reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, you know, um, because, you know, on the surface, you can watch it just for space battles and robots, and that's <laughs> fine. But that is not the heart of the show. The heart of the show is all these kind of personal interactions, the dynamics, the little kind of things that clue you in to, to who these characters are without actually slapping you in the face with it hmm. and they just kind of drip feed it throughout yeah i think you know i think the the new Battlestar galactic when i say new now it's 15 years old 20 years old yeah, almost yeah. is absolutely exceptional and maybe for the same reasons that you're describing uh danger man doc yeah um so I mean, and, and that's what you get from the 45 minute episodes yeah when you go back and you watch the 25 minute episodes yeah which of necessity are nothing but and you know each episode is um, introduce the plot, meet the characters, find a clue, follow the clue, have a punch up, end of the episode. Mm. It's it, it's completely unsatisfying because you get you get the superficial surface gloss, but you don't get any of the good bits. And I think that's that's why forty five minutes is such a golden length for me. Sure, really, really interesting, Doug. Anything else to say? I, I, I think we need to wrap up at some point because you know the, the, this is going to clock in at about two hours. This episode, Doc. Good lord. Yeah. Um, Next week, we're doing the Sontaran experiment. We are. I was worried that we were not going to have enough material from mm -hmm. the, these 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 itty little two-parters to talk about. Turns out I was wrong about that. That's all right, Doc. Um, so, unapologetically, we're going out of our narrative stream, which is going out of the narrative stream, which is going out of real time. How fucking meta are we? Well, that's true, man. But you know what? The flux will be restored in about three weeks' time. <laughs> you know, by the time we get to Peter Davison's third story, Kinda, I believe, um, yeah. the universe will be set to rights. So you know, I, th I think, I think, I think our audience can cope with that for the time yeah. being. What do you reckon, Doc? I think so. I, I, I trust them and I admire them a very great yeah. deal. <laughs> Don't forget, guys, you can contact us via email at differentdoctorsos.gmail.com or on Twitter at SOSdifferent. The doc is throwing all kinds of shapes at me at the moment. I think it's some kind of some kind of evil black metal, <laughs> <laughs> evil black metal horns of, horns of doom or something like that. I liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it. Any, any band in particular there, doc? Um, well, give, me, give me a band. Give me a band and a track, and and, and we can close out. Um, with that, I think you should probably go to um, I Am the Black Wizards by Emperor. 
Fantastic. There we go, guys. So look forward to that um, in a few seconds' time. We're gonna listen, we're gonna close out with I am the Black Wizards by Emperor, <laughs> and we'll see you tomorrow, would you believe, for episode 35, the Santoran experiment. You're gonna be there, Doc. Of course I am. See you then, mate. <laughs>